What's the matter? What's the matter? You just took a Viagra to have sex with me. Well, I, I, I thought it would make it better. It was better. It takes some of the pressure off. Because you can't get hard without a Viagra? Is it because you don't think I'm sexy? I thought you'd think it was fun for me to supersize it for once. That is the worst birthday present you could ever give someone. I was just trying to go turbo for your birthday. My hard-ons are still in analog. This shit's digital. I don't want a turbo penis. I like your medium soft one. Look, I can get it up. Just not that far up. Where did you get this? I got it from Barry. What? You got it from Barry? Why do you care? This is my dick we're talking about, not yours. We are young people. We don't need medication to have sex. I only took it because it's your birthday. I thought you'd like it. Happy fucking 40th birthday. I am not 40. And I don't want to have a husband who has to take Viagra to get a heart on. I don't have to take it every time, but once in a while. Fuck 40. 40 can suck my dick. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. recording all right hello and welcome back to the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong episode number 40 we've hit yet another milestone here julio this is this is us facing our own uh mid podcast live our, our own mortality yes we are 40 now we uh we have to face that we do we can just retitle this episode 38 if we'd like but we'll know it's not true um Again, my name is Alex, joined as always by Julio for this uh, shindig we do here. Uh, if you've been paying attention, you know the um, once we hit the 10, the 20, the 30, the 40, and this point forward, of course, 50, 60, 70, 80, etc., we choose what we call a gray area episode where it's somewhere in the middle, not too high, not too low, uh, but in a place where we can both take a stance on a film when discussing it. Um, for episode 40, and what did we do previously? Episode 10 was Scream 4. No, episode 10 was Natural Born Killers. Excuse me, that's correct. Episode 20 was Scream 4. Episode 30 was... The A-Team. Thank God. So, so wait. Natural Born Killers, I defended it, and you went against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scream 4. I defended it. Eddie went against it, because that was one yes. the first time we had Eddie mm-hmm. on, and I was just kind of like in between. Yes. And then per, for episode 30, for the A-Team, you defended it, of obviously. Course. Yeah. And then uh, I was against it. 40, we're switching roles again. Yeah, put your defense shoes on. Uh, we're here for a 51 percenter, so almost dead center there of what we need here. And it is, this is 40. Julio, you have beaten me in this battle of attrition. I've put this on, uh, off rather, as long as I can. We've been doing this for uh, what will be four years in October, and I've managed to successfully put it off. Wait, four years? Three years. Three years. I'm three sorry. Years. Yeah. Jesus, we're not that old. Either. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's four, four 
at 40, 40. episodes. Yeah, yeah but okay. Four, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, I, I'm glad actually I'm on the defense on this one because it's just so easy when a movie's this good. Uh, just be on the defense. But uh, but yeah, real, uh, uh, very divisive in the Rotten Tomatoes. As many red tomatoes as green splotches. And I have, there are so many quotes, so many people with opinions that were very enlightening and very uh, amusing. Same way that this movie is. So uh, I have them alternated and I have, you know, a bunch of them now. And then we'll do another bunch in the second half during the real talk. But... Uh, Let's start with Avi Offer from NYC Movie Guru, who says, A sparkling romantic comedy brimming with razor-sharp wit and genuine pugnancy. It's funnier and wiser than Knocked Up, Funny People, and The 40-Year-Old Virgin combined. Do you think that's a positive one or a negative one, Alex? This came out after Funny People? Oh, yeah. This is his fourth movie. Oh. It, it was probably advertised as the fourth movie by Judd Apatow. Oh. Okay. In the tradition of Quentin Tarantino films. Uh, Wesley Lovell from Cinema Site says, If this is what 40 is like, someone needs a reality check. Simon Foster from Screenspace says, Judd Apatow's first stint in the director's chair since 2009's underappreciated Funny People isn't quite the classic middle-class American comedy drama he might have made, but it's as close as Hollywood has gotten in a long time. I guess I didn't know it was that old uh, Funny People that is. Yeah, I was still in College Station when I watched it. Uh, Kevin Carr from Fat Guys at the Movies says, The most horrible marriage of two horrible people raising two horrible children. Yep. If, my, if my family would act like the people in this movie, I would sell them all into white slavery. Wow. <laughs> you got a little carried away. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it's just a movie, dude. Uh, Phil Villarreal from OK Magazine says, Judd Apatow plunges the stage of life for all its ample misery. Just the way he did adolescence in Freaks and Geeks and Quarter Life Angst and Undeclared and Knocked Up. <laughs> I appreciate the undeclared reference. I just see you not. Uh, Ty Burr from Boston Globe says, I hate to say it, but if Judd Apatow wants to be a seriously funny filmmaker, he may have to leave home. Jonathan Lack from We Got Discovered says, This is 40 exhibits none of the pacing problems that held back Apatow's previous features and builds to a simple, moving conclusion with extraordinary precision and clarity. Sometimes you just need like 140 minutes to make it there, but that's still that doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, Christopher Lloyd, not the actor, um, nor the guy uh, that was kind enough to let us use his song for the opening uh, credits and the closing credits. Three. From Sarasota Herald Tribune, says, Gradually you come to realize you're trapped watching a bunch of people you don't like who stopped being funny a while ago. Mm-hmm. David Jenkins from Little White Lies says, A real step up for Apatow. His masterpiece? Quite possibly. Who said that? That was David Jenkins. From Little White Lies. Blocked. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Dwayne Dudek from Milwaukee Journal Sentinel says, This is 40 is the equivalent of a vanity license plate. Thank you. We'll have more in the second half of the show, but yes. uh, for now, let's let's talk about This is 40. Let's uh, dive into this misogynistic dribble. This is 40 is allegedly the sequel to... <laughs> It's hypothetically, it could be the sequel to Knocked Up. Have you ever it's, seen... It's more like a spinoff. Have you ever seen that thing, just complete sidebar, that guy that got banned from Wikipedia because he turned everything on Ray Romano's Wikipedia page into a hypothetical? 
it said Ray Romano may or may not be an American comedian. Like it just, he may or may not have had a television show. Anyway, so this may or may not be a sequel in the same universe as Knocked Up. Exactly. It, I think, like I told you, we're watching it. It's like True Detective. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> right. It, well, I think that we, if we are operating in the uh, multiverse idea of just multiple realities that have similarities you know it's just it's just one of them and that's why that would explain some of the inconsistencies uh and, and they're not too the shy to throw on fucking throwbacks though be like oh hey this character from this movie that you saw that was vastly superior anyway pete and debbie are our subjects here pete played of course by the incomparable paul rudd who it's really hard for me not to hold this movie against him uh, Debbie, of course, played by Judd Apatow's uh, wife. Um, they start the movie. Uh, I'm sorry, Leslie Mann. Um, they start the movie in this the. This is sh- America, Alex. <laughs> we re- we refer to women by name. They're not just someone's wife. This movie doesn't. This movie's like, hey, this is my wife and my kids. Take it. Movie starts with Pete and Debbie having sex in the shower. Uh, they are on the cusp of both of their 40th birthdays. Of course, now Debbie doesn't want to celebrate turning 40. Um, Women. Yeah. Again, the misogyny, it doesn't take too long to kick right in. Dude, it's not misogyny when it's like, I mean, and it's not just women. I mean, obviously, they're both having issues with turning 40. It's just that they, they're handling it in a very This a movie very builds ways. Pete as the sympathetic character because his wife's such a bitch and he has these two daughters that have ruined his life. Does he? I don't think so. I think that this movie... I mean, we'll get into this later on. Well, but... to be fair, it is Lonesome Dove in that it's fucking, it's, it's 16 hours long, and by the fourth act, you know, you're ready to turn on <laughs> Pete, but um, she immediately begins shaming him because he took a Viagra to have sex with her in the shower. Ooh, who is she to cast stones because she's smoking on the side? Well, you know, they're both keeping secrets from each other. I don't think that the, Vi- the Viagra equates with her smoking. Her smoking equates with him eating muffins or cupcakes. cupcakes. Uh, sweets in general. Sweets in general. You know, that's like both of them being unhealthy. The the Viagra thing is just more as in like, you know, it just shows you where the relationship is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good entry point for somebody. It tells you right away where they are in their relationship. It's not just that they're turning 40, but it's also that their marriage is not turning 40, but turning what? 14, 15, because she says at some point that they basically got married because she got pregnant. Well, and of course, they have to use the trope of she got pregnant, so he had to marry her. Otherwise, he would have never been with her because they have to build the sentiment around that. Right, but the fact that, spoiler alert, they're still together by the end, I think it tells you something. You know, he they both choose to stay together when they could have. And I, I mean, we're going way ahead. It tells but... me something is that I value our friendship too much because I sat through this fucking movie. <laughs> we're introduced to their children, Sadie and Charlotte's, uh, both daughters uh, played by Maud and Iris uh, Apatow, the daughters of the director. and Whom we've literally uh, seen grow before mm-hmm. our very eyes throughout Judd Apatow's filmography. So that's why I think it's kind of a, a pretty genius move to cast these girls that we already have an attachment to from previous movies. They are in uh, 40 Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Um, were they in Funny People? I've only seen Funny People one time. Uh, I think they are just because I don't remember, but in, when I was going through the review, somebody mentions that you see a video of uh, the oldest daughter singing Memories from Cats in Funny, in funny People, yeah. So, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, so that's yeah. her. So she's, yeah, she's in all his movies, so, at least up till this one. So right off the bat, for. 
uh, a reason that's not at all explained until the end of the movie. Uh, Sadie is very much into Lost. She's marathoning the entire show of Lost on her iPad, which I assume Apple gave them a, a decent endorsement <laughs> check because fucking iPads and iPhones are all over the place in this film. This is 2012. This That's before I had an iPhone. So Well, yeah, but I think that one of the things is just that this is, uh, you know, they're kind of, I don't want to say that they're rich, but they're affluent even through their problems. And I like that it humanizes the the uh, higher class, you know, because it's easy to just kind of shrug off their problems. People like you and me, middle class, we're oh, just yeah. like, oh, well, fuck them. Yeah. What are they complaining about? But I think something that you learn throughout the course of this movie is that, no, rich people also have it tough. You know, they may have like a big house and two cars and like a gazillion iPads and Apple products. But and- truthfully, at the end of the day, rich white people have it the worst in this country. That's why they need all, the, all those tax breaks. <laughs> I think this movie explains to you why they need the tax breaks. Okay. Uh, this is where Trump got the idea. I I could see Donald Trump liking this movie. It's misogynistic enough that you know he could he could pull it off. Debbie explains that she's thirty eight. They make her a birthday breakfast. Um, she's not going to pronounce herself as forty. Uh, in this opening, you know, it's it feels like an extended opening credits. It's really not. But we're introduced to kind of a rapid fire. Uh, the uh, revolvers emptied as far as characters getting shot at us. But don't worry, you don't have to remember them until the last fucking hour of the movie. Um, Barry played by Robert Smigel, Barb, his wife played by uh, Annie uh, Mumalo. Mulalo. I'm not familiar. I've seen I, her I in things her. before, but um, and then uh, Jason Siegel's in the movie, which Jason Siegel is always a beacon of hope and a ray of sunshine. Uh, he's supposed to be the same character that he was in Forty Old, is or excuse he, me, Knocked we, Up. We don't know that for a fact. He could be just some has other the same guy. name. Okay, how many Alexes are in America? Well, we haven't gotten to the midpoint of the movie yet where they make this fucking veiled-ass throwback <laughs> to Knocked Up, so I can't use my point yet. Uh, no, but, but I mean, I think that it's just... I, I like this movie because it really... It's messy and it's disorganized. I mean, I, th- I don't think anybody can argue that. I think that it's all over the place, but that's because that's what life is. I think this is Judd Aptow deciding that for his fourth movie, he's going to do away with the artifice and he's just going to go with life. Mm-hmm. And so life, it doesn't follow like, you know, a, a regular plot structure. And in life, like weird shit happens. Like, you know, oh, look, this guy that I know that his name is Alex, just like that guy, Alex, that I knew from like five years ago. I mean, you know how you know he's not the real like or the, the old Jason from Knocked Up? He doesn't have a mustache. It was a goatee, actually, that he had. Well, yeah. whatever it is, he had, you know, and he's and now he's like he's got shit together. That that can't. And he be doesn't him. have one line that steals the entire movie because Jason Siegel has the number one line of Knocked Up, which so. is. You have to set up the entire scene to really make it pay off, but it's that one where Seth Rogen brings Catherine Heigl to meet his friends, and Jason Siegel comes out and he's just like eyeing her up and down, and then it's really quiet, and he just says. All right, I'm going to go make a protein shake. <laughs> I saw that movie in the theater when the weekend it came out and lost my fucking mind at that line. Moving right along here, though, um, we get, you know, kind of the insight into what Debbie and Pete do. You know, we remember from Knocked Up or the universe that Knocked Up existed in right. with the creators that uh, he worked for a record label. He worked for Sony Records. He now owns his own record label because he's cool and able to branch out, you know, do these really wild things, whereas she's just a woman, so she should have nothing beyond owning a boutique. But he's not cool. He is, his business is failing. 
he's a failure out of the two of them. And yeah, I'm not saying that she's not shrill and that she's not just a pain in the ass. Mm. But how much of that is because of how much of an asshole he is? No, it's again this movie trying to build Pete as the sympathetic character because you find out where all his money's going. Yeah, but that doesn't mean. But he's still like keeping secrets from but, her. Well, yeah, but he's cool, and you know he's committed to his roots, and he's indie because he's trying to fucking relaunch fucking Graham Parker. <sighs> I think that the movie paints him, uh, and this is not a failing in the movie. I think that this is very intentional. The movie paints him as this man child that can't handle a relationship, and it's driving his poor wife crazy because he was forced into marriage because he accidentally got a girl pregnant to build the whole. Yeah, I can relate to that. You know, he's doing the best he can. I think and Leslie Manns are I, just bitching at him the entire time. I think you're supposed He's got to these two to, little shits for kids. I think you're supposed to relate to both of them as in like, fuck, these poor kids. Like, this poor guy, uh, guy and girl. Like, you know, Oh, no, no, no. I, I relate to the kids. Don't get me wrong. There could have been a far better film made about the kids, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so never you mind. You know, rest your sweet little head. And by the way, Lost, I'm so glad that somebody's finally given it its due because so many people were quick to just basically – write it off after the ending because either they didn't get the ending or the ending was not what they wanted it to be. And then suddenly what should have been an enduring piece of work now is just kind of a this controversial joke now that gets thrown around. Like the ending of Lost is a classic and it's not – this is the only movie that I've seen it where it's referenced as, as what it really is, which is like a mind-blowing piece of fiction. Slow down, Carnahan. We'll get there. I mean, we're going to come back around to that at the end of the uh, little uh, contrarian's corner here. Debbie's Boutique, uh, her employees are Desi, played by Megan Fox, and Jody, played by Charlene Yee, reprising her character from the Knocked Up universe. Again, is she? Uh, apparently. <laughs> she's not okay. dating Martin Starr and doesn't have the glasses. but Exactly. So maybe it's, not, maybe it's another Asian Jody. So here starts the part of the movie where it's really like we're following the wrong fucking story because we're following something that we've seen a million times before, whereas there is this plot that's set up that never goes a goddamn inch off the ground is that uh, Debbie takes Charlotte to school and her teacher explains to her that she's having trouble here. She needs to get here earlier to get settled in and that, you know, she needs to focus and things like that. The movie right there can take off in a new direction and following this young girl and her problems in school. But no, okay, the movie's not called. This is fucking eight. However old that girl is. The movie's called. This is 40. I am aware because, you know, this is eight would be interesting. How do you know? <laughs> that's I guess you like kids more than and I And that's do. more of an insight to Judd Aptow's demeanor is like, oh, this this doesn't matter to me. His, his daughter probably really does have problems in school, and he's just like, oh, fuck it, I'll write it into a movie as a throwaway line. Well, I'm sure that if you were if we were following that plot, now you'd be complaining there's too much going on in the movie. No, because, again, I understand that's my that's the John Wayne thing. There wouldn't be a movie then. If I, if I argued that, then it would completely change the purpose of the film. I'm saying there's a far – what makes it so frustrating is with these characters – there are different, more interesting movies to make, and they choose the absolute worst route to take. Actually, I don't think so. I think they might have. He chose like the least popular way of going because, really, I'm not going to argue with you that these are very unsympathetic characters. They're hard to watch, but but that's why it's it's so interesting, so refreshing to watch a movie like this because you're sitting here for like two plus hours. With these people that are like self-destructive and dishonest and just nasty to each other. And that is a brave choice to make if you're, you know, if you're following 
40 year old virgin knocked up and funny people even funny people which wasn't like great as far as uh, you know as let's say uplifting as knocked up and 40 year old virgin but that's still you had more clear uh, uh characters to root for whereas like here when you're watching they're both pretty unlikable and and I actually appreciate that. I'm glad that Apatow decided to just stretch his muscles and be like, okay, well, let's try something else, something different from the other comedies I've been making. We're straddling a line here because we're we're dipping close to real talk in terms of, you know, my opinions on this. But um, we'll kind of put a pin in that in terms of, you know, these being pitched as genuinely unlikable people as opposed to just they are. And he thought it was, oh, this is great. I don't know why my impression of Judd Apatow is my impression of Vince McMahon, but um, well, here's the other thing. No, I, before let me cut you off there. The most unpopular route he took in this movie was only having one scene with Michael Ian Black. Well, two if you count his voiceover. Yeah, that's true. But when that scene was over, we'll get to that here actually momentarily. You and I were both just like, God, we need more Michael Ian Black <laughs> in general in life. In, in life, and in general. definitely in this movie, it could have it could have been better. Here's the other thing: like, I, I don't think that. Here's a filmmaker. This is his fourth movie, and he's been working in the business since forever. So he knows what he has. He knows his limitations at, at any given time. So I I like the two kids here. They do well with you know what they're given. But mm-hmm. do you honestly think that that little girl could carry a movie on her own? I'm not saying she has to carry. I'm saying that there's a story there to be explored outside of them just being angry at each other. You know. The, the the as far as the kids go relating to Debbie and Pete is just they resent them because they had them at no point in the movie at all do they express joy that they have children they have yeah when they're watching like the, the that their older daughter their oldest daughter is like and on the stage she's painting and she's like, it's oh, all she's superficial so shit she oh she's cute she's tall they, no they're also like impressed by how she handles the the guy online when she when they're like when they break into their ipad and they start looking at her chat they're that's like, just like that's what that them doing what they think they need to do as parents and also just like fucking intruding at no point do they express how their lives are complete because of it it's always they're fucking mad that they have kids because they ruin this shit what i'm saying is i think you're getting distracted by the, what they project on the outside Side and you're not like reading into what they're not saying you know what i mean like they're still they're oh happy. no this movie says and doesn't say a lot of things <laughs> it takes eight hours to do so but at no point do they really come across that what i'm saying is there is it could still be this is 40 but also tackle these subjects of oh shit my daughter's having a hard time at school she may you know there may be you these... wanted you wanted this is 40 and my daughter is eight no <laughs> The only thing it tackles is my youngest daughter's sweet and innocent. My oldest daughter just went through puberty, so she's a living nightmare to deal with. I don't have kids. I assume that's true, but I've seen that shit in movies a million times before. I don't think you've seen it like this, with this honesty where, where you know, Paul Rudd, is, he, he gives his wife the finger, and he's just, like, generally nasty to her, and, and she's also just, like, she drives him crazy. I think that this is, like... A very non-sanitized version of that of that couple, which I appreciate. Uh, there was like several reviews I couldn't include, but there was one that was like, "Why do we need it? Why do we need uh, a movie about the most unlikable characters from Knocked Up?" And it's like because you don't get that movie usually. That's why. So this is like the more extreme version of Revolutionary Road. Yes. Like an update, because Revolutionary Road is like the 50s, you know? Like back then, Kate Winslet's options were pretty limited because it was the 50s. But now, the year 2000. We've got got 
Nemo's dad in the Michael Shannon role. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> um, moving right along, we you know the aforementioned Michael Ian Black is the the banker for uh, Pete and Debbie. Um, Pete's missed his mortgage payment. He you know he's fallen on hard times. He is putting all his stock behind Graham Parker um, and the reunion. He's trying to get you know their, that band back together for his record sales, his record label. Um, he thinks this is the future and again he, he gets painted as this cool you know south by southwest stick to your grassroots <laughs> style cat you know you so, know what the biggest argument against that 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 reading is is south by southwest is no longer grassroots no it, <laughs> that too but <laughs> paul rudd's fucking hairdo it's just like that's such a douchey hair and, and it's brought up in the movie so you know that it's also intentional yeah, several times through the movie, they're like, oh, I didn't recognize you without hair. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm growing it out. It's like, he's such a douche. Not a single thing happens in this movie that's not to be unrecognized <laughs> or, you know, not discussed. Debbie, you know, and this goes back into my read that this movie is just supposed to paint women as evil, is that she, like, comes up with their new life plan. They're going to eat healthy and, you know, they're going to work out. <laughs> the way that scene is pitched is she's forcing this new lifestyle on him. And he's supposed to be, again, we're coming to, like, some finite <laughs> points here. But there's literally... Uh, exchange of dialogue that describes their characters in This Is 40 in um, Knocked Up where she says you know she's getting mad at him about she finds all the registered sex offenders in their county or something and oh he knocked up yeah yeah and she's like you know I, I hate you. No, I, this is the thing. I'm evil because I care about these, but you're the cool guy because you don't give a shit. And he's like, yeah. That scene in Knocked Up, which I love, that is like the perfect reason, the perfect justification to make a movie about this couple. They're like, they're not vanilla. These guys have like, they're they're just going to fight. But, but they, they turn they, that shit up to fucking a thousand. They're like, well, yeah. Because they're older. It's been five years. And she's... That shit, like, the, it gets pent up. This scene, the read of it is that, you know, you're supposed to view Leslie Mann as the bad guy because she's forcing this cool guy just to change his ways. No, I think that you're seeing her as the bad guy because you would hate if somebody tried to force that on you. But... but oh, yeah. Uh, I mean... <laughs> exactly. Especially Leslie Mann with her unlikable think, face. See, I, as I was... I, this is the second time I've seen this movie. And... I was suddenly, you and me both, brother. <laughs> I was just overcome with the realization of why this is a masterpiece, which is that you can read it depending on where you are in life, what you're, what baggage you're bringing to the movie. You can read it as the story of a poor woman that's trapped in a loveless marriage with an asshole, or you can read it as a story of a poor guy that's trapped in a loveless marriage with this just bitch or you can read it as like the story of this couple that's just struggling to conquer their inner demons the movie's like a rorschach test it's just like <laughs> everybody's gonna see it differently and it's really hard to make a movie like that because a movie will usually lead you by the hand and tell you this is how you're supposed to feel about the movie but this one is just like like apatow just just opens up his heart and, and just he says he says you guys think i'm trapped in here with you you're <laughs> trapped in here with me yeah that that's a really good way of expressing it as a Rorschach test. Money troubles are piling up, and it's uh, been kind of established slowly throughout the film. We haven't really been introduced to him yet, but it's clear that Pete is giving money to his dad. The amount of which isn't really expressed up until this point. Um, it's you know collectively about eighty thousand dollars that he's given. Is so that played by the incomparable 
Albert Brooks. Who at this point in time should have won an Oscar for his role in Drive. Academy Award nominated uh, Albert Brooks. Mm-hmm. Comes back to comedy after a dramatic role in Drive. We got a couple Academy Award nominees in here. We'll get to one here in a little bit. But Mike Lee in Black, this is his on scene, or on screen scene, rather, just to explain, you know, the money troubles and the woes of what's going on. And uh, one of the side plots of this is there's money troubles at the boutique that Leslie Mann runs, and that $12,000 has gone missing. Um, her two employees, Jody and Desi, are at odds. And um, Desi, played by Megan Fox, always seems to have these really nice and extravagant things. So the blame seems to be in her corner. And Jody actually says that she's the one that that Megan Fox is the one stealing. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah, I really like Megan Fox here. Uh she is uh you of course in a very clueless way asked me halfway through the movie, has she ever been good in anything? <laughs> and I wanted to reply, has she ever not been good in anything? She's uh I've always liked Megan Fox and it this goes beyond how attractive I think she is. I think that she she is because of how attractive she is, she's underestimated like I you don't, I guess, whenever you like something that she's in, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying like America, the world. The royal we. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think that your first instinct is to think that, oh, well, she's hot. So obviously that's what's really affecting my opinion. But no, I think she actually has good comic timing. She, she, I mean, she's an actress. She, she does well. Uh, and whenever she has been in bad movies, I don't think it's because of her. I think it's because of the writing, the directing, whatever else. So he or she does... She has some really funny stuff, and then she gets like a really emotional moment later on. I think were you there? I think that's what might have been when you went to the bathroom when she uh, confesses to being an escort. Were yeah. you? Here? Oh, you were here. I remember that scene. Okay, yeah, but yeah, she seems to be the one, the, the culprit, as it were. Um, now back at the homestead, Sadie, you know, having gone through puberty, her and her younger sister Charlotte aren't getting along. We just get this long establishing scene that goes fucking nowhere. We get- like most kids' arguments. That's true. It's a fair point. Uh, we get a montage of just old people shit. They're getting their colons checked out and, you know, uh, different testing, things of that nature. Again, there's just so many different paths. Old people shit. They're 40. <laughs> I mean... No, but the the whole fucking point of the montage is like, oh, they're old now. Well, the movie's called This Is 40. I'm aware. This is... I, I actually... And see, when you... I mean, forget about the relationship stuff, which obviously is the, is the backbone of the movie, but... Keep in mind, we're only in hour seven at this point in the movie. <laughs> I like that it, it just also takes its time to just... Movies have a tendency to either focus on the very young or the very old. You know? It's like, if you have these scenes that we have right now of the, all the health issues and whatever... In a movie starring like Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton, then you're like, oh, yeah, that's funny, and I've seen it before, and it's just familiar. But when you see it happen to somebody that's in their 40s, that's not so familiar, so that's why I like it. You know, here's the thing at 40, you already, you know, you have to get your colon checked, and you have to, you need a tune up that's way more uh, detailed than what you get in your 30s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I appreciated that I was there. I appreciated the, the financial troubles because it's different when you're like approaching bankruptcy like in your 30s as opposed to when you're like in your 40s. That's it's it's a lot more serious. So all these like little montages of like their their little problems they're having during uh you know during this week, I think they add up to add this sense of uh, authenticity to the experience of actually entering the fourth decade of your life. 
Moving along, uh, back at the homestead, Debbie's trying to work on her smoking. You know, she's tried to limit her smoking. If she, Pete limits his sweets, cupcakes, things of that nature. So she says, hey, I'll give you a blowjob instead. Not misogynistic at all. Um, as she's giving him head, the kids come banging at the door. Oh, that misogynistic. What does he do sexually for her the rest of the movie? He uh, he takes her to a hotel. Oh. B- shares his pot cookies with her. Okay. And while she's giving him a head uh, dome, as it were, <laughs> helmet, as they say in Spaceballs, um, the kids come banging at the door, and there's just this really ugly, nasty scene of them. Like, it shows how much they hate their kids. Just screaming at the door, you know. And, God, I can't imagine what it would be like to have two kids. Uh, but at the same time, I would wish at some point in my day I would find something redeeming to it, which there's none of that in this. Well, it is a comedy. I mean, you know, this is just a classic. No, exactly. This scene's not funny. But it is. They're no, trying it's to not. have sex, the, the, and, and the kids are interrupting that. How is that not No, they're comical? not trying to have sex. She's <laughs> trying to perform a sexual act on him. You are demonizing blowjobs. Uh, Oral sex is a valid choice for people. Please. Obviously, she didn't have time to actually like have sex. Trust except- me, I am not demonizing any kind of blowjob activity. Blowies, you know, they make the world fl- turn, flow freely. I'm saying for the context of this movie, it's just like an of course type of thing that that would happen. But yeah, it's just a really nasty scene. There's nothing comedic about it at all. I, I think it's awesome when at the end, she's just like, she finally gives up and she's like, oh, forget it. And Paul Rudd's like, no, don't forget it. <laughs> and again, like I said at the beginning of this, Paul Rudd is incomparable and it's uh, surprising that, did he get any laughs out of me out of this? I'm trying to think. Yes, he did. Uh, did he get any what? Laughs out of me. I'm sorry. I don't remember. I know the first laugh was from Albert Brooks, I think. like The, the, the first, first time and like one of the only times I laughed in there was uh, Graham Parker when he's getting interviewed. And it's like, what's different or what's different oh, about yeah, this different. album? And he's like, nothing. <laughs> that was your first laugh. It was one of three, I think, throughout the course of the film. This is, you know, the next uh, we're moving along here into Act 37. We meet the, the fathers of the film. Uh, Albert Brooks is revealed to be uh, Paul Rudd, Pete's dad. He is... Um, it's kind of fitting the trope from Orange County they used, and that'll kind of play off in the next scene as well, where he Paul Rudd has brothers that are little children, and um, in this one, yeah, yeah, and then um, the main character in Orange County has a brother who's a little child as well, so it, it kind of mirrors this in a certain sense. But uh, Albert Brooks's character is pathetic. He lives, you know, right under an airport, and he just is always fucking bargaining for money with his son. Albert Brooks is a great actor and has actually a couple of really good lines in this, but his character is just so pathetic. But that's okay. I mean, that's that's you can have pathetic characters. It doesn't make the movie bad. It just means that you know that these are people with issues, and and that's actually that's what makes the movie more interesting. If he was a perfect dad, then then I wouldn't really care about what happens. But I see him. I, it's it's clear that he loves his son, and it's clear that he loves his other three kids and his wife. And it's also clear that yeah, he just can't for some reason he just can't get a handle on his finances. So I I like that that suddenly puts Paul Rudd in a position where well he has to choose between his family and helping his dad. That's I think that's just good conflict building. Yeah, and he doesn't tell his wife all the while. That's which, the... yeah, I mean, she he's not cool. She's the one it. losing money. He's <laughs> the one making it. So um, we meet Debbie's dad, who's John Lithgow, uh, which, again, like I said, Orange County, they play a married couple in that movie. So that was a kind of a little fun little throwback. Uh, another, like, return from John Lithgow to comedy 
I, I mean, I haven't seen him in anything since like Harry and the Hendersons. I was gonna say uh, Third Rock from the Sun, probably, and even then, like you know, he's underrated not, show. He's he's not playing a clown here because he's he's very. I think that when you think John Lithgow and comedy, you think that he's like way over the top. He but was here. still on the set of Dexter rolling into this. <laughs> he, but yeah, he has his own family. He's kind of separated from his daughter. Um, we find out a few scenes later that they hadn't seen each other in seven years leading into this. It's a pretty awkward scene. That shocker goes on a bit too long. Again, I think that it's, you know, we're in like, what, the second half by now of the movie when we start like peeling away the Ooh. layers and just kind of seeing what makes these fucked up people tick. And it's almost like no wonder that they both have so many issues mm-hmm. when you see who their parents are. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was great. That's just, uh, in going back to, Apatow kind of treating this as real life where everything is a mess. It's just a lot of it, it. It's just like these pieces floating around that you kind of like connect yourself as the audience, you know, like the, the way that these dinners happen, these visits to the parents, they, they don't follow like a normal structure. And that's awesome because again, that's, that's just life. Mm-hmm. We get a family dinner scene at uh, Pete and Debbie's house. They tell Sadie and Charlotte that they are eliminating the Wi-Fi. They're going to start eating healthy, um, and they're limiting computer time to eight between eight and eight thirty uh, for the kids. Just basically trying to one save money and two kind of take it up a notch as far as the family touch goes. This scene segues into them leaving their kids for a weekend. So I like it. I love it. You know what? Not everybody can be the perfect parents that the movies want you to be, and especially okay, you're reaching forty and your kids are old enough that the novelty has worn off. So. This is when you actually have to start handling them like people. And to see them being unable to do it, it's just – it's very recognizable. It, I, I like it. I, I, I think that that's not what you usually see in movies. They 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 have absolutely no qualms like just getting fed up with their kids. <laughs> yes, because this movie like completely shits on the idea of having kids in general. Well, I think it's telling you that it's okay for it to be kind of nightmarish at times. It doesn't have to be all like it's a wonderful life all the time. Sometimes you just sometimes it just gets ugly and nasty and, and the kids will drive you crazy and they won't make any sense. And well, you know, that's that's just how it is. Don't feel bad when you when your life and your kids don't reflect what the movies are telling you. So Pete and Debbie go on vacation uh, and we get this 10 minutes like basic uh, sequence of them on vacation. For two reasons. One, to make a dumb fucking throwback to let let you know it's in the same universe as Knocked Up. And two, to establish the point that they're perfect together when they don't have kids. When they come back to the house, uh, everything, you know, their drive back is wonderful. And they get back to the house and the kids are crying and all this shit. And, you know, everything's, like, awful again. But, again, the main purpose of this fucking 10 to 15 minute sequence of the movie is for them to say, hey, I got some weed from Ben. Remember him? He was in Knocked Up. But we don't see Ben. So you don't really know that this Ben. We do see Catherine Heigl, though. Right, right. But you don't see Ben. So it could be like someone else that doesn't look like Seth Rogen. I had forgotten about that line. (laughs) I had forgotten about several things in this movie that I. And also, I think that you're not giving enough credit to the reason for for, for that sequence. It's not just that, oh, without kids, they're great to each other. I think that it allows them to pretend that they're not adults. It's not. It's like a trip back in time in a way. They can pretend that they're in their 20s and they're just being irresponsible and ordering room service and getting high and all stuff. It's not just about not having the kids around. It's about not having any of the worries that they've had. They're not worrying about money, about the business, about their parents. So it's not just the kids. It's just that 
this is kind of like showing us oh well these these people this couple has been changed by time like time and responsibility it just hits them and turns them into versions of themselves that they don't want to be they got to wind back the clock every now and again well yeah yeah sometimes you just kind of like have to let loose and just forget about everything else all right Moving right along here, my notes say Megan Fox must get naked. Oh yes, <laughs> building on the the narrative of she must on the whole misogynistic nature of this film. They for no reason work in not once, not twice, but thrice shots of Megan Fox just for no reason in her brawn panties. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's not like she's the only person that's getting to show skin. No significance to the plot of the film at all. Yeah, there is. They have a whole conversation about boobs. That, oh, to pay off where, oh, I know you're pregnant because of this. It, it, well, that and also like, yeah, I, I, but also it just, you know, you're turning 40, you're getting older, your body is not what it used to be. So I I just like seeing that contrast of Leslie Mann being insecure about her body versus Megan Fox is just like very confident about it. Okay. <laughs> yep. That, that plays a pivotal part in the film because throughout the movie... Uh, Whatever it does, also it complements the sub the, the subplot with Jason Siegel, where you know he's her personal trainer. I guess allegedly at this helped point her. in the film, you don't even fucking remember that Jason Siegel's in this movie. <laughs> it pays off later. He ends up being Megan Fox's trainer. Yep, pays off. Uh, so Megan Fox has to get naked. Um, Sadie gets in a fight with her mom and gets her phone and computer taken, so she can't finish Lost. Um, the record tanks, uh, yeah, uh, the Graham Parker record only sells like 600 copies. So, um, Pete's money troubles are pretty intense at this point, but it's not just Pete's problems. I think like it, it's, it's in a way, it's his problems to adapt. About. And this was like the most pivotal scene that I, or not pivotal, but most poignant scene that I could relate to in terms of like, bro, just cause you think something's good doesn't mean everyone else is going <laughs> to. I mean, I in no universe would compare this movie to Lewin Davis inside Lewin Davis. Uh-huh. But I, that same kind of thing. I, just, I would. I know you would. It's that same kind of thing of just being like, yeah, just because you're on board with something, because you know how great it is, doesn't mean that the general public's smart enough to know that. Yeah, and I think that it's in a movie that's already tackling family and aging and all this other stuff. Aptow has the ambition to also add like extra stuff. And so now, now it's like, oh, well, let's talk about the music industry and what's what's going on. We all know there's good music, and yet we only have like 621 downloads. What's going on? And he just leaves it open-ended. You know, mm-hmm. just like, hey, if you like music but you haven't bought any records in a while, maybe you should do it. Yeah. And they make some anti-Semitic joke about how Jewish people don't want to download music. Is that what he does? Yeah. I th- he doesn't do it. The, the, one of the characters that's proven to be an asshole. Like, Chris O'Dowd. Yeah, Chris O'Dowd, who's just like He's an, in this movie, idiot. and I like Chris O'Dowd, but his character doesn't mean enough to really bring up. <laughs> yeah, how about uh, Linda Dunham? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she said she fucked an old dude. Joy. Uh, Debbie's pregnant. Um, Debbie's mean. Oh, okay, so Debbie's pregnant, and then she... <laughs> 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 Debbie finds out she's pregnant, and then uh, going back to the aforementioned text records uh, that she went through uh, for Sadie, she finds the the young boy that was being mean to her and just completely suns him on the schoolyard. Tell me you did not like that scene. Uh, 
it was okay until it paid off with the really misogynistic standpoint where he's like, I get it, you're going through menopause. Right, and then she and then she sets him right. She's like, No, I'm pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> Hormones. It's life. But also I just like seeing there's this this thing where it seems like okay, if somebody's bullying your child in school, as a parent, you're just almost helpless. Right? You just can't. It's the way that society has evolved. It's like there's nothing you can do. You have no recourse other than sort of like videotaping somebody like beating your kid <laughs> at the yard. There's nothing you can do. It's just like, oh, well, we just kind of have to like sit down and talk it out. And maybe, you know, and I kind of like seeing her take action. And she doesn't hurt the kid, but she just she sets him straight. She yeah. makes him cry. And I'm like, fuck, yeah. I, that's also something that you don't see in movies very often. Fair enough. Also, speaking of like the universe of the knocked up universe and her being pregnant, the doctor, her gyneco- gynecologist, is the same. I heavily prefer the phrase gynecologist. <laughs> Gyna. <laughs> is that from. Uh, that's from 40 Over Virgin. Virgin. It all comes back. Yep. It all comes back to Judd Apto. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, that and that's guy, one of those things I quote undeclared on a fucking daily basis. So at the end of the day, I may hate this fucking movie, but he wins. But yeah, that guy is the same. What's her name? Leslie Mann? Allison's doctor. Oh, well, that's it's, right. It's, yeah, also, it's not about her. Yeah, it's Catherine Heigl. Yes. Yeah. And Catherine Heigl's crowning achievement in her life. You know, she's doing commercials now. Well, everybody does commercials. Samuel Jackson is doing commercials. No, but like shampoo commercials and shit. Well, Samuel Jackson is bald, so he can't be. <laughs> did you see that ad that Tommy Lee Jones apparently did like a cologne thing in Japan? He he, no, he's not above it. Someone like, I think it was on one of my wrestling things that I follow. It was in Japan for a show, and it was like a subway ad of just Tommy Lee Jones looking miserable, holding up like a bottle of cologne. <laughs> he, Two Face here, no, Harvey Dent. See that movie. <laughs> Batman Forever had the balls to do what Dark Knight didn't. They have the actual scene where Tommy Lee Jones gets the acid thrown in his face and he's <laughs> Alright, here nor there. Moving along. Uh, Graham Parker has the concert. No one fucking comes. We get a pointless cameo from Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day. How is that pointless? Do you agree? I was reading something today. <laughs> or listening to something, rather. Someone said Green Day is the all-time number one sellout band. I, I No, I don't agree. But, I mean, I think, uh, what, because they're supposed to be punk and they're successful? Oh, no. What, what, I don't, what's the... They did do that weird thing where they were punk in, like, the early 90s. And then, like... The biggest thing is I can see that by, based on, like, their look and everything that they changed for American Idiot. The problem is I really like American Idiot as an album. But I don't... Because... Okay. I mean, I, I'm going to make an ass of myself because I'm really not, like, steeped into punk culture or anything. So, mm-hmm. But... To me, just an outsider like me, I'm not like a music snob or anything. So to me, I'm just like, I think punk and I think protest. And what the hell is American Idiot if not like a protest against the government at the time? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, what's funny, and actually, you know, somebody somebody knows more about this. They might be right. But to me, anytime I had that argument with people back then, it was just like, well, I don't like that they got political. And it's like, okay, well, that's what they wanted to do. So You ever heard of The Clash? Their whole point, like, they're supposed to be, like, the founding father, them, the Ramones, and the Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols was just the first ever boy band. It was a record label group that was put <laughs> together. The Ramones were an our punk rock, but that, that that argument is invalid right off the bat because The Clash always sang about fucking political shit. Right, but they were, I guess these people, they're like, well, you know, it's not Dookie, and it's not Insomniac, and it's not uh, Nimrod, you know? it's like, And then suddenly they decided to, like, 
thing against George Bush. And of course, most of, it's usually a Republican making that. Yeah, argument. but at, at the same time, what you have to explain to someone is okay, yeah, because Dookie is an album that no one can ever recreate. That's like <laughs> in my lifetime, there are probably not more than ten albums that have been made that are better than that album, more complete, perfect albums as far as music goes. Yeah, but it's also you can like both. You no, 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 me? and I it's do. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, you and some... me shredded Jesus of Suburbia on <laughs> yes. karaoke that one time. Yes, we did. But yeah, that's way off track at this point. Well, not quite because Billy Joel oh, shows up right. here, and he, I mean, and he, much like Apatow's daughter, he looks off screen to make sure he's saying his line right, <laughs> and it stays in the film somehow. <laughs> Fuck. I'll give you this. He's more of a sellout for being in this movie than for anything he's done musically. Absolutely. But I still like him. It's like I didn't think I could dislike Eric Bana more until I remembered he was in Funny People. <laughs> uh, Jody's taking the money. It turns out that Desi is an escort. She goes out for a night on the town with uh, Debbie. They shack up with a hockey team. They're kind of hanging out and partying. They dance. Uh, they dance. Uh, the One of the hockey players wants to have sex with Debbie. She's very flattered, but says, hey, you know, I'm married and pregnant and yada, yada, yada. Um, and she takes Desi home. They have a really good time together. She says, basically, hey, how do you get all this money? I'm an escort. Jody's been sta- taking all the money. Um, this is like a pretty strong... This, I think, like... The please following... defend this scene. Oh, dude, like the next 20 minutes or so, they're just like, that's the ma- major shit going on. Like, And there's some real acting because their uh, they're girls' night out is intercut with the concert that, that nobody cares about except for Billy Joe. And... Uh, so you get an intercut of Paul Rudd crying in his car. Do you remember this? Because you were this, I know for a fact you were in the bathroom. I don't happened. remember that. Okay, so after Billy Joe walks away with like with the musician guy, and they invite Paul Rudd to go with them, and he's like, "No, that's okay." And then he just goes to his car and he starts crying, and they intercut that with uh, with the girls like having a good time. That's some that's some hardcore. I came filmmaking. back into the slow mo dancing montage, right? And then and then you know they have their talk and. I just liked how there was it was this scene that was one it was funny to it to show the bonding of the generations because Megan Fox is obviously much younger than Leslie Mann and they just had a a nice night out and now they're just it's like that's put them on equal footing so now they can just they they can be real with each other they can talk and confess and that's when Leslie Mann says that she's pregnant or well, actually Megan Fox figures it out and uh, and then Megan Fox confesses that the reason she has all this money is because she's an escort. Just a huge thing to confess. It's a big deal, and they I think they give the moment the gravity that it deserves. Well, I guess that's without the thing. losing the comedy. She has to be an escort, and she has to you know undress three times in the movie. But she gets to be all, all omnipotent and figure out you know that she's pregnant all on her own. Well, no, it's because uh, she knows her. That's that's how how well she knows. It. You oh, know, that's right. Uh, that's the reason she had to be in her bra and panties about well, no, those five are hours earlier. Things. And listen, like I said, this is his fourth movie, but now he knows what sells. And sometimes you have to make some sacrifices. Uh, so, yeah, if putting Megan Fox in a bikini for five seconds will sell your movie, then sure, why not? That's society's failing, not Apatow's. Okay. But anyway, big acting from everybody here. So there's Paul Rudd crying. There's Megan Fox confessing her darkest secrets. And, and then this, if I'm not mistaken, this takes into... The big fight between Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann. <laughs> Megan Fox says, "Debbie, I never thanked you for saving my life." Uh, yeah, this uh, everyone hates everyone is what I have on my notes here. The kids can't get along. Debbie and Pete have their big f- fucking colossal blow up where 
She asks him to cancel the birthday party, and he doesn't. He admits he's been taking Viagra all this time, all this bullshit with the money. Um, they really, they, they just basically air out everything that's been building up throughout the movie. Is before or after where we get the fucking unbearable scene with Charlene E? Yeah, it's after. I wrote it's after. Debbie confronts her about stealing the money. It, it's just like it, it's hit after hit because you have the big fight, then you have the Melissa McCarthy subplot that brings them back together, and then you have the uh, then you have Jody. Well, it's been a few weeks into this movie, so we got to bring in another Oscar, <laughs> uh, an Academy Award nominee into the fray, where Melissa McCarthy literally is just there to be annoying and curse. Well, just to to bring them back together, give them like a common foe, because they're they have their big fight. They're not speaking anymore, and then Melissa McCarthy comes and starts accusing uh, Leslie Mann of harassing her son, and then Paul Rudd jumps to her, her defense because he loves her, and then they join forces and make Melissa McCarthy look like a crazy woman. Yeah, it's all exquisite. <laughs> Just seeing it laid all out with out. meticulous effort. <laughs> yes. Well, you see, Nolan like how... <laughs> is his approach to this. You see how well they they work together when they're on the same page, and when when they have to work together, they do. So it's just like this this thing that's just getting between them called life. You know, they just need to figure it out, but they still have the strength of being able to work together when they need to. So we can get to it in real talk, but there is the scene where. Um... Debbie fires Jody for taking the money. Uh, Melissa McCarthy does represent uh, the mother of the son whom Debbie attacked, you know, saying, hey, don't be mean to my daughter, that type of thing. And it's true. Uh, Paul Rudd goes off on her at the school, but once they, they're called into the principal's office, they both just concoct this big lie together, and it makes Melissa McCarthy snap, and, you know, she flails her limbs and says a bunch of swear words and things like that. And- she says, I cunt. Well, actually, uh, Paul Rudd says it first, mm-hmm. and then she repeats it, and it's just glorious. When was the last time you heard I cunt in a movie? Never. That's right. Sadie gets wind that, you know, they've been reading all her texts and everything. She explodes at home and, you know, yells fuck at her parents and I want to watch Lost, blah, 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 blah. And they end up setting up for the birthday party. Shit hits the fan. Basically, the last hour of the movie is this birthday party scene in which um, everything happens. Yeah. Again, that is life. You know, and we get like the little moments, like the little sister we stealing, get, stealing the phone to give to the big sister. We do, and we get Megan Fox in a bikini again because why not? Because it's a comedy, Alex, and you have to like have the two guys chase after her. If you forgot, Jason Segel was in the movie. He comes back. Um, we get this fucking weird ass airing of grievances with Debbie and Pete's dads, um, John Lithgow and Albert Brooks are all there. Um, and then just through wild happenstance with the two daughters and uh, Debbie getting in a fight, uh, Paul Rudd finds out that she's pregnant. Yes, and it's. Did just, I miss anything? I mean, that's. I it, took it, about it, seventy minutes less to do that, but broad strokes. I mean, you also missed the emotion. Okay, there is. It, I think I would just nom- anybody here could have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor just based on, <laughs> on what happens to that party. Everybody gets, like, these awesome scenes, and, and they get to shine. They get, like, their moments. You know, Robert like, uh, Smigel has, like, one line, but his, like, reactions in the background are actually genuine top-notch. There's a moment when uh, uh, 
uh, Albert Brooks says something about how, like, oh, I just figured out you don't like Jews. And then Lonesome Man's like, don't play the Jew card. You, you can't. It's, and then uh, Michael goes like, oh, no, you can, you can always play the Jew card. It never <laughs> expires. You can, you can do it anytime. Well, I was going to say, I, I just, I really like that it's all come to, because we're coming to the end of the movie. We're, we only have like 45 minutes left. And uh, <laughs> so the big thing is just that Paul Rudd finally finds out that she's pregnant, that Leslie Mann is pregnant. And this is after he's kind of like gone on the record that he would, that he doesn't want any more kids. And the one part in this movie that actually switches gears and acts like it gives a shit about women and the female character in the movie, uh, Debbie, makes no goddamn sense at all because it switches to her to make up with her dad and they haven't seen each other in seven years. And then they're like, Oh, we're just like each other. And then it's like, Oh, watch my daughters who you've never met before in their entire lives. You know, watch after them while yeah, I go. But sometimes away. family, I mean, you know, blood is blood. Family's family. And those kids, Mi sangre. They, they take up, you know, they, they, they go for, for Lithgow. They, they instantly want to hang out with him. As he looks rich. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what they know. This there wasn't anything super meta. Like, Hey, you're Harry. From Harry and the Hendersons. Fucking hell. They, they invite him to watch Lost. <laughs> they do. They said, we'll watch the last episode of Lost. It'll pay off. For those of you listening, I made a big, broad motion with my hand while I was doing that. <laughs> so uh, Pete is mad. He takes off on his bike. Um, Jason Siegel hooks up with Megan Fox, because why not? Um, we get this long... I think this is where you go back to... Again, I'm telling you, it pays off the earlier scene where Megan Fox seems like really confident about her body. And then you realize that, no, you're always uh, uh, not confident in your body. That's, that's just because of the way society makes you feel. Jason so. Siegel is somehow a personal trainer in this. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's, he has lots of success stories, starting with, with Leslie Mann. He calls her at 12, and, and he calls... Megan Fox is six, and she doesn't argue. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, this is the plight of women in America. You could look like Megan Fox and still feel very insecure about your appearance. This is literally like it, that's they just fucking lifted Dennis from Always Sunny. Like that's his shit. That's what he <laughs> fuck this movie. Moving right along, Pete takes off on his bike. This long meandering scene of Debbie chasing him. Um, he somehow runs into someone's car door, breaks the window out. He gets in a fight with the guy. The guy punches him in the stomach, and he goes down. They go to the hospital. Um, somehow, fucking uh, Nemo's dad and Debbie make up for no reason. Not for no reason. They they really they connect through their love for Paul Rudd. And then he, he fucking literally takes money out of her wallet. And because because this is life, Alex. It's not like your average movie where everything gets tied up in a bow and and then you know all there's no loose ends and everybody changed for for the better. No, this is this guy is deeply flawed, and the best he can say is one a half ass apology, and two tell Leslie Mann that you know what, don't worry about it. He will not grow up to be like me. He's not gonna be me, and he actually loves you. And that coming from him, it means a lot. So, but it's not perfect. So of course he's still he's still, you know, he needs money. He's a loser. All right, fair enough. I mean, the movie ends with them agreeing to sell the house, which is a big thing throughout the movie that they don't want to sell the house, and which they... wouldn't have happened if he hadn't given all that money to his fucking dad in the first place. Right, but what I'm saying is that there's it's not like a happy happy ending. This is just more like real life. But the dad does nothing redeeming. He takes a fucking. I, we forgot to mention. He gives him a picture that he bought that was drawn by John Lennon to his dad. So That's anyway, just him being lazy. While while all this shit's going on, and then you know we get the final scene where Debbie and Pete, oh, we love each other. 
Why do we do these things? We go back to the finale of Lost that they're watching at home. And this never fucking washed upon me until I watched it this time. Once everything's resolved, Judd Aptow's daughter has the line of, it's not sad because they helped each other reach their destiny. <laughs> Go and fuck yourself, Judd Aptow. Uh, genius. I, 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 mean, I don't know. I almost walked to my DVD shelf, took Knocked Up, 40-Year-Old Virgin, and undeclared off the shelf and threw it out the window. You know, I'm not going to say that it's subtle. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work especially because they also take some like really nice shots of Mad Men earlier in the movie where you know Paul Rudd is criticizing Lost and he doesn't give a shit about Lost and then his daughter is like well fuck Mad Men it's just a bunch of people smoking and whatever you know and you could accuse Mad Men of being too heavy handed with symbolism at times so I think it just it all comes full circle like uh, things always do in Judd Apatow movies is the guy who created Mad Men is January Jones's wife? No. <laughs> okay, I was going to say that would be too perfect. That would be like just absolute parallels there. So everything's fine. It, but it's not, and I think that's the point of the movie. It, you know, it's like, okay, so they survived this birthday. When they turn 50, it's going to be another shit show. And that's fine. That, that's usually... That, we'll be waiting. Yeah, that's what happens in, in real life. And as, as it winded down, it also hit me because there's there's no hiding how personal this is for Judd Apatow, obviously. Right? So no. this could be also... I don't want to make assumptions, but this could very well be just a cry for help. And the fact that it <laughs> happens to be as entertaining and as, as deep... As, as it is, while also maybe potentially be a man just asking for help the only way he knows how, it's, uh, I find it very moving. You know, you're, yeah, you're getting angry because this entertainer didn't dance for you the way you wanted him to. But what if what you're watching is just like this guy telling you about his problems the only way he knows how? That's fine. <laughs> That's fine? Good. I, I'm glad I convinced you it's a great movie. Can we watch Buffalo 66 or uh, The Brown Bunny and say the same thing about Vincent Gallo's afterwards? Probably. Okay. Fair enough. I have nothing more to give. <laughs> My this, body is ready to move on. Does this mean you're, you're ready for real talk? I am definitely ready for real talk. Okay. Why do we fight? I don't know. It makes no sense It at makes all. no sense. When we get in a fight, look in my eyes and let's remember this moment right now. No, we never have to fight. But you're such a dick sometimes. I know I am a dick sometimes. People think I'm so nice, but I'm such a dick. Thank you for admitting that. And you get so mad at me. Oh I, my I feel like you want to kill me. I do want to kill you. How would you do it? I don't know. I'm poisoning you. I poison your cupcakes that you pretend not to eat every day. And just put like enough in to just slowly weaken you. I would enjoy our last few months together. Me too. Because you'd be so weak and like sweet, and I could take care of you, and but while killing you. See, you know what I love about us? You can still surprise me. I figured for sure you'd knock me out with one fell swoop of poison, <laughs> but you would extend it over a series of months. <laughs> Have you ever thought about killing me? Oh yeah. Really? Sure. How would you do it? Wood chipper. A wood chipper? Yeah. A wood chipper. Yeah. Wow. I know. Did you see Fargo? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a bad plan. The cupcakes is a way better plan. It is. You're right. You know what? I won't murder you. Aww. All right. Real talk. Real talk for This Is 40. Let's get to this. 
So, <laughs> this is 40 again, 51% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is... We are 40 now. Yeah. <laughs> the movie's <laughs> over. ended. Uh, 51% is mighty generous, considering my thoughts on this movie. Um, but again, Rotten T- what all that fucking means is that one out of every other critic said, hey, I'd watch it. Yeah, hey, it's not as bad, uh, you know. Yeah. I like it a little better than everybody else, so I'll give it a, a red tomato. So... Um, Oh, go, go, go for it. You slow your roll there, son. I got to get through my stats, all right? I just can't wait for you to hear these quotes. Budget of $35 box office of $88.1 So it didn't fucking set the world on fire. Um, One thing I did forget, the release date. I fucking forgot it was a Christmas movie. (laughs) December 21st, 2012. This movie... I hate with such a passion. And if you've listened to the podcast long, you know I use that word hate. I'm like, oh, it's a bit of a strong word, which it is. I hate this movie. Julio, go ahead with your reviews. Okay. <laughs> I I think that, I don't know if hate, uh, you can feel hate in uh, many of these quotes, but you can feel the contempt. And then also the love. Uh, <laughs> starting with Stephen Witte from Newark Star Ledger, who says, Judd Apatow is not a disciplined artist. And that's a good thing. Uh, Eric D. Snyder from Screen Arky says, You get the impression this should have been called, Here are some things that Judd Apatow is thinking about right now in no particular order. Boom. Charles Koplinski from Illinois Times says, Apatow's spot-on look at modern relationships will ring true with anyone who's been married. Charles Koplinski, I feel bad for you. Yep. Amy Nicholson from Box Office Magazine says, Apatow gives us a couple who know less about each other than I do about my middle school friends on Facebook. Jordan Hiller from bangitout.com says, My suspicion is that Apatow made a conscious decision to throw episodes at us scattershot to reflect the battlefield chaos of a relationship in motion. Right? David Metzger from bullseye.com says, For those coming up on the big 4-0, relax. The events in this movie only happen at 40 if you've spent the previous few years making terrible, terrible decisions (laughs) involving your money and your partner. Matt Luker from thegisnet.co.uk says, I only hope that while my body gradually deteriorates and I slowly chip away at the planet-sized boulder that is my mortgage, I can still find time to be just like Paul Rudd. That's the guy that agrees with you that he's supposed to be sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Pete Vanderhaar from Houston Press says, Hey, remember that annoying couple in that Judd Apatow movie about the loser who got the hot chick pregnant? No. Well, we made a movie about them anyway. Clint O'Connor from Cleveland Plain Dealer says, Leslie Mann deserves an Oscar nomination for her hilarious performance. I'm Who? I, I'm surprised he didn't say brave and hilarious performance. That was Clint O'Connor. Blocked. And finally, J.R. Jones from the Chicago Reader says, this is too much like a $35 million smartphone filled with kids' pictures. Very telling. I, I, I like that one a lot. Um, yeah. So let me say first off, my stance I took in Contrarian's Corner only half mirrors my legitimate opinions on it. Well, like you said, it's it it's a fine line to walk mm-hmm. because I actually some of the things I said there, uh, I I kind of believe, but they're not. But I consider them positives. I mean, I can see maybe what he was going for, and I can see maybe why some people like it uh, more than I do. Look, here's the deal. What was the second one? Was it Before Sunset? Yeah. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, yes. Before Sunset is a masterpiece. And I think uh, Before Sunrise 
he was still trying to find his footing. And then before midnight is just kind of this one thing. What I'm trying to say is Apatow's working towards the trilogy. <laughs> We're still waiting on the third one. But he peaked. He sunsetted with the first one. The, the first one being knocked up. Yes. Okay. In the sense of like the adventures of Pete and Debbie. Exactly. Okay. I don't know. Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke. I, it, I'm trying to think if they're ever really likable. I think... In the first one, definitely. I yeah. think in the first one, but but you can forgive because even when they're like being pretentious or whatever, they're like they're young. So you're like, okay, well they're just young. Yeah, uh, I think that a lot of the when you find stuff reprehensible in this movie, and this is forty, it's because they're fucking forty and they're acting like children. <laughs> but okay, I want to take it further back because so, I really, I, I want you to. I just that line was fed to me by Eddie. He was like, I want to be there to you know set up this joke about oh. it. But yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, I, I do believe that Sunset is the masterpiece of that trilogy, and heaven forbid this turns into a trilogy, but Knocked Up will be the, the best one. <laughs> Knocked Up is the best film Judd Apatow will ever make. I'm sorry to keep cutting you off. Go for it, sir. Well, I mean, you know, this is real talk, so let's get real, because I'm trying to figure out what, why I react so negatively to this movie. Why do you react so negatively to this movie? I hate it. Right, but but why? You know, it's like, because... I mean, it's not a good movie, and you can just say it's not a good movie, but why do we hate it? And I don't know that I hate it, but it's certainly, especially the second time around, because I was, I was really kind of hoping that I would like it a lot better this time. So, uh, just uh, this is the second time you've seen it, because I only saw it once before also. Right, yeah. yeah I, okay. I think I screened it, and now this is my second time. I saw it in the theater, yeah, and it's um, back when I used to write, because when I, we worked together, I was in the loop. I saw movies all the time. I, I said it was the worst movie of the year it came out in. And I wholeheartedly stand by that. Uh, but, I mean, you know, it, it actually made me laugh a few times. It made you laugh. And you you were like a much tougher customer on it than I was. <laughs> I think it laughed like three times. Yeah. I think that I do appreciate what it's trying to do. But... I, I really have Which is to what? question Help myself. Help tell Jack off at night? Right, but okay, so like let's let's look at some hypotheticals. What if this was not directed by Judd Apatow? What if if you know, as far as you knew, this movie was directed by you know fucking Brandon Curtis, and he just got those actors and wrote this story? Would you react so negatively, knowing that oh well? It's not the director's wife, and it's not the director's kids, and it's not like this guy that has made three previous movies that I like much better than this, you know, would we react more positively to this if we didn't know, if Judd Apatow didn't come with all this backstory? I can guarantee you I wouldn't because half of my visceral reaction to it is the fact that it's his wife and kids. That really bothers me. Um, at the same time... Uh, so, so is it our fault because we're letting real life interfere with our enjoyment or, or with our experience of the Well, movie? I didn't like funny people, so... There's, I like half of it. I think don't we both like the first half of Funny People, like the build, and then like it like everything in, up till like when they go, dude. The, see Eric Bana. The, the the best part of that movie is like uh, the poster for one of Adam Sandler's old movies called My Best Friend's a Robot, and it's Owen Wilson <laughs> with his arm around it. That is the best part of that entire movie. Um, yeah, the the beginning of that's good, um, but. I mean, true Apatow fashion, the beginning of that movie is like an hour. God, and that I'm not even kidding. I forgot how long this is. And then when it was over and I saw it was only two hours and 15 minutes, I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me, dude. I, I, I think that the kind of lack of so long. plot-driven mechanics here, it works against it because it, yeah, it, it felt 
fucking long. I, it, that fucking birthday party scene is like a half hour long. Yeah, it and nothing is really accomplished that couldn't be done in five minutes. And th- when they got into their their big fight, and I was like, normally in a movie you think, okay, this is like we're nearing the end, and then I realized that we still had like at least forty minutes left of the movie. Jesus, more. and then it, um, when they're at the birthday party and like the daughters are shut up, shut up, and then she just shut up. I was like, fuck this movie, fuck it forever. Um, but okay, but okay, so that's that's one element, maybe you know, for better for worse, Judd Apatow now is just like there are no likable characters in the movie. That's, but that's not necessarily a doubt. Like I can watch a movie with unlikable characters. That's true. Oh, we fucking just said before midnight. Before midnight's a great movie, and you, right, there's and you, not really just, anybody likable. In that. It's really like Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy arguing. Yeah, sometimes they're being passive aggressive. Sometimes they're being just in their face aggressive, and that's kind of like what happens in this movie. Uh, so it can't be that they're they're terrible people, mm-hmm. and and also I was trying to just get into the whole. Listen, just because I don't like a relationship doesn't mean that a relationship is not working for the people in it. So you know, how many times do I meet a couple? And I was like, wow, how do they like stay together? Because they clearly can't do anything but argue. But I know that there's some people that that's just how they that's just how they roll. So Blue Valentine, I haven't seen Blue Valentine. Oh, okay, but doesn't she like leave him at the end? Yeah, I mean it's not happy. Yeah, but I'm saying like some. I'm, She's what, no Leslie man. The the point of that being, you know, you can well, you and I, we don't have the biased third party in the room, but you and I both love Revolutionary Road, and that's a movie about a very unhappy couple. Right, right. That and again, really no likable characters in that, but still works. the The problem with this is it's just it tries to modernize this couple that they're cool and hip. Um, it demonizes having kids makes it look like it's the absolute worst thing that can happen in your life is having kids at the same time i kind of half still stand by my they try to make paul rudd the sympathetic character in this whereas psychologically apatow wants his wife to come off as the dominant character of the film the alpha so to speak she's put in a tough spot and i i I really do question myself for because yeah i agree with you in the sense that most of the time i'm rooting for paul rudd's character and i'm on his side even though he's an asshole like Mm -hmm. i know he's an asshole so why is he more likable well he's he's also an idiot his character is an idiot right yeah Yeah, but and and she's being the adult and i mean she's not kind of but she's still being such a bitch well yeah she she's overreacting a lot and she's just being crazy in some instances and i just i don't know why i react so negatively to her performance and not at all with paul rudd you know one because you're with her the entire time and it makes you realize how unlikable she just inherently is she's but she's right and i like i mean you know why is it wrong for her why do we react negatively to the fact that she's trying to make them eat healthy you know it's like she's trying to actually improve their lives you know she's trying to give him some some uh structure and she's and she's actually the victim because she's not aware of the things she doesn't know how badly they are like as far as financially and he is keeping it from her because the way it's presented is she's like forcing this on him and forcing this on their family and all this shit and it's like that's really how it works in the real world but at the same time it's like the way this presented this movie and also a problem with it is is she's so fucking unlikable and knocked up that that carries over and that sticks with you when you watch this, when you start it, that stays with you for you and myself, people that mm-hmm. like know what we know in terms of like the story and all that shit. 
that stays with you for about 15 minutes. So you start off already not liking her. And then you're like, fuck, this is the director's wife. And then you're like, oh, God, she just gets to emasculate him constantly. And then you think, like, oh, fuck, what if he just made Knocked Up so he can make this to stroke his own ego? <laughs> and it fucking just, like, it, it's a constant breakdown. And I, again, I am curious to see how a woman reacts to the character. I've never talked to anybody about what she's like. I think uh my friend iris she she likes it or at least she likes leslie mann's character and so maybe it's just maybe it's a gender thing it could be but at the same time like even that it's like (sighs) there's so like the female characters range from like strong and dominant to uh, melissa mccarthy's brought in just to be fucking like a heavy set that curses a lot and then megan fox is there solely to like undress three times i don't know about that i mean she is <laughs> i'm not gonna defend it the way i defended it in contrarian's corner but i i think that i mean i'm sorry i i shouldn't say just megan fox it, they could have gotten any you know right four non-blonde to come in there and you know <laughs> take their clothes off it's um and you know i harp on uh, joking about megan fox earlier her dial like her delivery she's not bad in this she's fine and again her whole like admitting to being a prostitute basically yeah how she keeps going she's like well i only do like you know five times a year then she's like five to ten times a year then 10 to 15 (laughs) by the end it's like 10 to 30 times a year it's just the delivery is really good and the the scene she has with jason siegel is really good too um i love jason siegel and i I was kind of bummed he wasn't in the smart and not this time around but the first time i watched it Mm -hmm. i was like yeah jason siegel and then He's yeah. gone for the middle seven hours. I guess. I guess let's digress for a second, just to the the weird like sequel non sequel universe where this takes place. Because it really now that I don't have to defend it, it's really weird that they would cast Jason Siegel as a character that as the same character that may or may not be. I mean, you know, it, how do you how do you make how do you justify that he's the character that he is now? And I guess he's easier to justify than uh, Charlie. Jody. Yeah. I mean, Jody. There's no way. What did she got her act together? Stopped doing drugs. Got a job. Stopped stopped hanging out with Martin Starr. Right. Well, and then I guess she started stealing money. So maybe she didn't get. Well, the biggest thing with Charlene Yee is her character has no interaction with Paul Rudd or Leslie Mann and Knocked Up. Whereas the thing that frustrates me even more is Jason Segel is like this lecherous fucking right. horn dog that's right. after Leslie Mann that entire movie. Yeah, it's it's just so weird that you know why couldn't they get like uh uh. Fucking Seth Rogen to come in for like just five minutes. And, oh, the fucking and that's the thing. If you want to do like winking nod type shit, like they do in all these fucking superhero movies, you don't have to present it as, as in the same universe. You can have Charlene Yee in there and her name is Jody and you know wink nudge. Same thing with Jason Siegel, but they do that shit where like they clearly have that establishing shot of the kids where the big frame picture of Catherine Heigl's on the wall, and then hey Ben gave me this cookie that has weed in it, and fuck that entire vacation scene <laughs> because all it's meant to do is make some dumbass throwback to knocked up to make you realize it's in the same universe and to establish the point that they fucking hate their kids. But I, I don't know that they hate their kids. I think I, I really was like. I think it goes more. And to shocker, just, that scene goes on way too long. That is true, but I think they just hate being adults, and I I can relate to that. I I yeah, think that's my that's, fair. that's my struggle with with the movie, and it's that on paper I'm like I should like this a lot more, especially as I get older. You know, like the fact that he has financial problems that he's keeping from his wife. That is like a relatable thing as far as like you know not wanting 
your your partner to know like how badly you're fucking up and then not knowing how to like tell the truth once you've been lying for a while that kind of stuff is is relatable and you know I'm not a big fan of kids to just seeing them losing their mind with two like teenage girls it just I'm like yeah that makes sense that also looks like like it should be more relatable than it really is in the movie and again there are so many movies that tell that same story and and I've dropped you know before midnight and I Lewin Davis that that has parallels to so many different things you don't have to be like a struggling artist to understand like the story that movie's trying to tell that type of shit and for this here it's just such a fucking ego stroke it's like well, I don't even know if it's an ego stroke, and it's one of those things that's unfair to chastise because given the exact same situation, who's to say that I wouldn't be like, yeah, I'm going to put my wife and kids in this, And but it is just like, okay, this is how it's Truman Show-esque, truly. Well, we are assuming, because we really don't know. That's the other thing. I mean, we're, we're assuming, and I don't think, I don't know. It would be ever- awesome if like his him and his family just live in like a shack. And well, yeah, they're minimalists. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, we just we just did uh, that Willie Allen Willie Allen movie uh, a couple episodes ago, and and I remember him talking about how like people just like to assume that because he's in you know most of his movies, and you know sometimes he plays writers that basically the movies reflect who he is, and he's like I'm completely different from how I am in the movies, and so this could be Judd Apatow making a movie using his wife and kids, but that movie does not reflect his life. That's, yeah, it, that's it, fair. I mean, it might reflect things that are going through his head, but it's not really, you know, a cry for help, like I said, in, in hashtag CC. That's uh, fair. Um, in which case, you know, it's not an ego stroke, but it's still just kind of, I don't know. It's also incredibly whitewashed. This Is, is there, who's a, do we have a, any? There's a black, black doctor. That gets made fun of pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call him the witch doctor. Yeah, oh, that's, no, that's, that's the uh, Middle Eastern doctor. Wait, who are you talking about? There's there's another doctor? The black doctor that's doing the colonoscopy on Leslie Mann. Oh, well, I completely forgot about yeah. that that scene. Well, I'm just saying it's it's a it's a winter wonderland where they are. <laughs> I'll say that. But it, 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 that's another thing that I thought about, which is like it bothered me a lot more the first time I watched it than this one. Where I'm like, wow, like to have your problems, you know, because you still have the most telling moment, I think, is when they're going. We've been hearing them talk about like their their money problems, and then they're exiting that uh, that meeting with the teacher and and Melissa McCarthy, and they both walk each to their cars. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I get it. You're having problems, but you live in a completely different level than I do, and that I automatically resented them for that. And then you see and, the birthday party they have that's fully catered, and right, you know. and it's like, well, maybe you can, you should not have the party, but it's. It's kind of – I don't want to feel that way because just two episodes ago, I was defending Woody Allen for you know doing something similar, which is like just because you have money, it does not mean that you don't suffer from heartbreak and existential issues. But here's the thing, Julio. It all comes down to if the movie's good enough, you'll forgive it. And right, execution. is just not good enough. Yeah. That's what it all comes down to. Um, knocked up's too long. But the execution of that movie is great. Catherine Heigl is a terrible actress, but the execution of that movie is great. I think she's good in that movie. She is. And that, again, that's why I have such a hard time. And, like, as much as if you listen episodically to us, as much as I fucking rip on this movie, you'll hear me praise Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared. And those all come from the same mind. And it's just. Not to say everyone's you know not entitled to fuck up, and I'm not calling this fuck up because he probably thinks it's great. He probably fucking loves it. But as far as you and I go, and most people I talk to, 
and just our general rule of thumb and what we've said since we started this thing these things these imperfections with movies if the movie has you you'll accept it and forgive it and from fucking square one of this movie you're automatically just like no like you're not on anyone's side the first scene they're having sex this amazing looking man is banging this amazing looking woman and they're arguing about the means they're they had to take to get there and but that scene can work that's the thing like that same setup it could work and it's like so what you know going back to what if you if somebody else had directed it if it was a different couple if it was not if you had absolutely no relation to knocked up if it was just like you come into this movie cold and it's cold today we're 40 and it's directed by uh Lars Marty's, Van Trier yeah by Lars Von Trier and it's just it's Michael Shannon and uh uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus. <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus. Yeah, there you go. And uh, we're making quite a movie here, my friend. <laughs> I, I want to make it now. No, Let's there, go. there are uh, just that scene in general, like that whole earned sex concept of a scene. There's many ways to pull it off. Uh, Natural selection with Rachel Harris. There's a scene in there that's very similar to that. But as it pertains to this, it's just right off the bat. You're. You think it's supposed to be funny, and it just sets a bad tone. And then the movie does, it really does nothing to try to get that back. And then that whole, not and then, because this is kind of something completely different, but I wasn't kidding in the first half. I didn't realize, I thought it was just like fucking jacking off the whole lost thing. I didn't realize that they were tying that into the premise of the film and that line. It's not sad because they helped them achieve their destinies. <laughs> I hate this movie so much more I, after that. I really... See, there are some things that I can just very securely, very safely say that I just I just think that they're bad. Mm-hmm. Like, the lost thing is stupid. I don't like it. I think that it's just... And it's a weakness with Apatow where he'll just go with the pop culture references. I don't like them. I mean, I guess some people like really like that kind of stuff. But for some reason, I don't really care much for the Shrek movies. You know, it's just like... The constant pop culture referencing just gets on my nerves. It and, also really affects the shelf life. Well, yeah, that too. It was like, I don't know, 20 years from now, who the fuck's going to know Like, you know, what the big deal with Lost was? Well, maybe, I guess, if you've seen Lost. But uh, I to make that like a big subplot in the movie, I don't care how you tie it into your to your ending. It just seems like so like lame. Then the other thing right. that's tied to that is just that, I mean, I don't want to be mean, but, you know, there's, I don't know... There's no way of saying it without sounding mean, I guess. You know, like, child actors, I mean, you know, there's, like, you luck out if you get, like, a really good one. And here he has two that he has to deal with. And maybe, you know, because they're his actual kids, they maybe he felt more comfortable directing them or whatever. But they, I just didn't think they were very good in the movie. And they, they just weaken a movie that's already having issues. You know, every time you cut to them and they're supposed to have, like, some sort of emotion, they're just not... You know, good actors. I, I sound like such an asshole. No, no, no. On, like, no, I'm, girls, but... I'm very glad you tackled it because you approached it much. Like, I was waiting for that to be the next bullet point, and I was just going to go for it. So you gently cracked the egg. I was just going to throw it on the fucking sidewalk. The little one fucking is clearly looking off camera, reading cue cards and following instructions in several scenes in that fucking movie. And, again, when I was that age, would have done the exact same thing. It's not their fault. Not my job. Right. It's not their fault. It's just Apatow putting them in that position where they have to. When you look at things like 
Haley Joel Osment in Sixth Sense, uh, Drew Barrymore in E.T. Dude, the little girl in Logan, which I just watched, she is fucking amazing. But that's like, that's why you go and you do like, you know, this huge casting calls and you scour the world to like find the kids that work for a particular role. Oh, absolutely. So, and yeah, and that's the thing. It's like um, in his previous movies. Uh, and I have my phone out right now because I don't want to just call her the girl from this. I'm going to look it up real quick just so I can reference that. But in movies like uh, Judd Aptow's movies uh, in Knocked Up, they obviously had a couple lines in there. Um, they had deleted scenes that were recorded for uh, Forty Year Old Virgin, both his kids. He just he has this fixation with having his kids in movies, which I guess is is fine just because you know it's he can. But it doesn't mean that once you do that, they are eligible for criticism. <laughs> Bitch assholes. Well, I mean, you know, I'm happy to say, hey, the kids didn't work for me. And, you know, maybe he should just stop. Oh, oh, that's what, I'm not saying that as like, I'm going to be like, oh, fuck these people. They're a waste of life. But at the same time, it's like his girl was probably fucking legitimately 13 at that point in time and you know probably it wouldn't be good for a child's psyche to be reading things like hey jake lloyd yep golson said uh john golson i'm sorry he's not just prince um uh john golson a friend of ours um or an acquaintance of mine rather but hey he said on twitter one time and i remember it really just put into perspective for me that um he never saw the merit in dogging on Jake Lloyd for episode one because he couldn't imagine what it would be like to be a a 10 year old kid being told you're the worst part of the worst thing ever. Right. And that's exposing young kids to that is a very dangerous thing. And it leads the door open for uh, a Peruvian and a fat American like myself (laughs) to sit on a podcast and rip them apart. But we're not. Okay. So let's make it clear. It's not them. But it's it's them in the movie. That's the problem, you know, because we're talking about things that make you disengage from the movie. It, it takes you out of the moment, right? And I'm just like, it's not like these these girls have like just walk in roles where they have like come in and they do something funny and they walk away. Like they actually have there, arcs yeah. in the movie. You know, they're supposed to have a subplot where they just can't stand each other. Like the 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 older one can't like stand the the younger one, and then they finally come together, and then they have the thing with loss, and it's like that you're making them you make the mistake of making them a big part of the movie, mm-hmm. and that works against it. And this isn't a movie that already has like a gazillion things going on. You know, you could easily just cut out that entire subplot and just focus more just on the relationship. You could entirely cut out John Lithgow's subplot. That too, it it's and really... you could significantly shorten Albert Brooks's subplot. Yes. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot you could cut out of this movie. Really, no I, purpose would, for Melissa McCarthy. Would we be more? Well, no, she does have a purpose. She brings them together. I I had forgotten about that okay. until, until we saw it now. All I was right. like, oh yeah, that's right. Because I remember that she was in the movie. I was really hoping you were going to say she does have a purpose, bringing prestige to the film. <laughs> well, that's she's an Academy Award nominee. <laughs> Uh, real quick before we get too far off, uh, Bailey Madison is the name of the actress that I was going to reference as a phenomenal child actress. Um, she was Toby Maguire's daughter in Brothers. Have you seen Brothers? Yes. She's the little girl in that that really likes Jake Gyllenhaal and hates her dad. Um, and again, that that could all be director and film. But I remember in that specific movie, she was fucking phenomenal. 
uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a hard thing. I I would imagine, like, you know, working with kids. I can't and imagine. Then, yeah, and then, but you know, I think that's why you're the director and you make the hard choices. And you could just like cut the whole thing off. You know, it's like if it's not working, just cut it. You know, if it's like, oh, they work when they were small, smaller parts, and now when it's something bigger, you know, that's what the cutting floor is for. And like I told you, I can't believe there's an extended version of what we watched. That was the theatrical. Well, release. it might be like the Dawn of Justice extended cut that that makes it make sense. Yeah. Suddenly, it redeems the entire movie according the, to what I've seen. It. Uh, Corey's uh, Halloween Two, exactly. It, yeah. it brings it, just it together. puts everything back into perspective, and uh, and then suddenly it's like, oh no, it's it's good. This is forty. It's actually knowing my luck, Corey. I'm I'm gonna watch that and be like, this is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's there's way too much going on. It's. It's yeah, I mean so that's another thing. I maybe disconjointed. I would be more forgiving of it if it was a ninety-minute movie. You know what I mean? That's... You know my rule too. If a movie's ninety minutes, it's not long enough to be offensive, so I can forgive a lot of its shortcomings. Yeah, I just I think that all the elements combine to make it feel very self-indulgent, and it reminded me too. While we're getting ready for this, an interview I saw uh, Judd Apatow on the Daily Show when Funny People came out, and. Obviously, he didn't mean it, but he came across as so smug in that interview because John Stewart was telling him, "Hey, you know, I, I thought I was gonna see a funny movie. I went to see Funny People, you know, and then it's like about death and all stuff." And and Apatow was like, "Again, I'm sure he didn't mean it. He was trying to be funny, but he was just like, yeah, that's right. You went in thinking it was just a comedy, but you came out learning something, right? Oh. It was something along those lines. It just it just rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah." And and then I just can't help but imagine that same thing. You know, he made this as forty, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach you now. You thought you knew what was going on with me, but just let me tell you about life at forty. And and it just I don't think it matches what what the movie thing seems to think it is. You know. And as someone who's precocious about marriage and children, also I watch this movie and I'm like, okay, there's nothing redeeming about it at all. So why should I do it? <laughs> I, I've seen movies about failed marriages and failing marriages uh, that were much better than this. Oh yeah, and and even like I want to say like they were even like some of them have to have been not very plot driven, kind of aimless in the way that this one's aimless. But there's still something that engaged me in those occasions that did not engage me here. Uh, and I think it could just be an accumulation of of elements, you know, the the what that we've been just been talking about, you know the. Uh, the Judd Apatow brand working against itself in this case, and uh, but the the problem is too with Forty Old Version knocked up making so much money it's gone on to affect the genre as a whole, um, to where a lot of great movies have suffered because they feel the need to keep everything in. The prime example I can think of that kind of ties into what we're talking about in terms of the meandering of not just marriage but the long term relationship, uh, the five year engagement. That right, was a fucking right. ninety minute movie. It was tight. That would be such a fucking great movie, but it falls into the the Apatow trap of like, well, let's just keep everything in there. Yeah, there's uh, it really it doesn't happen as often as I thought it did. In in this movie, like the whole like riffing, but when it happens, I just instantly rub me the wrong way too. That uh, the early on, the first time you see Jason Segel and it's Leslie Mann and her friend. And she oh, goes on and on about her vagina, how yeah. it's numb, and she just goes, you know, she just keeps riffing about things that she can do to her vagina that you know, and that she can't feel, and that is that's a thing that I think I found funny 
three movies ago, you know, yep. when it was the 40-year-old virgin and they go like, you know how I know you're gay? Like, that scene works. At least, God, I hope it still works for me. It would be really sad if I watch it now and I'm just, like, annoyed by the whole thing. But I remember when I watched that, I'm like, this is fucking genius. Yes. But maybe it's only genius when you do it, like, once every blue moon. It's the point of no return. Like, it, it's fucking um, my wrestling analogy. If you kick out someone's finisher every match, it's not special anymore. Right. Like, uh, and I, I say right, like I know what the fuck you're talking about. You're, you're correct. Um, well, no, the one I go to, the riffing is um, in Knocked Up, where Paul Rudd and Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck, Jesus. Wow, which version did you see? Paul Rudd and Ben, uh, Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen are going back and forth in the. Uh, you look like a cholo on Easter. No, uh, you look like you look like gay, uh, Babe Ruth's gay brother, Gabe Ruth. When they keep it tight, but that fucking vagina scene, and then that fucking Charlene Yee scene where she's like, oh yeah, Ugh. brutal, dude. There was a there was a review I didn't quote, but that that said like this should have been called Improvisation the movie, mm-hmm. and that is, I don't think it's unfair because, again, going back to behind the scenes stuff affecting how we see stuff, you know, I, I just, I think that we know enough about the Judd Apatow process that we're like, oh yeah, he just lets them riff. Uh, I remember being. Like mind blown when uh, I read that everything is very meticulously scripted in the before trilogy because it seems so natural that you yeah. think that he's just letting them go with it but no apparently they get together and yeah they improvise but then they write it all down and then what's happening what you see in the movie it's all scripted well that yeah. blows your mind about Woody Allen too like he, right, he's right. really a stickler for that and um, um, even on a much smaller scale Lorne Michaels hates ad-libbing so to know that a lot of those snl skits have always been like really by the books but yeah it's um and that whole riffing thing tying this all together the problem is the germ of that idea is true one of my favorite scenes ever in a movie was in a riff and an ad-lib was the lineup scene in the usual suspects oh the the motherfucker yeah (laughs) Yeah. and he's in my cocksucker what the fuck and throws the card aside (laughs) but um that again that's just the germ of the idea and because it worked well in 40 year old virgin or worked well and fucking knocked up and even super bad it doesn't work here and what he's trying to do with this script that's something you can't there's not room for ad-libbing like you're trying to tell a very specific story so you don't need to fucking let that shit wiggle its way in it's the second time that Ocean's Twelve is coming uh, up tonight. <laughs> the first time that it's coming up while we're recording, but uh, it reminds me also like in Ocean's Twelve when Soderbergh was talking about how like oh for for the sequel he wanted to make a messier movie and that's why I mean one of the reasons I don't like that movie is because it's just so messy and I feel like it kind of loses its way. Uh, and this is also I think that he probably set out to do to make a messy movie because you know. I mean, going back to what I was saying in, in Contrarian's Corner, like that's what life is. It's messy, yeah. and you know, that's just how it goes. You know, there's like all this shit going on, and and it doesn't follow necessarily the structure of a you know three act movie yeah. when when it's happening to you. But <laughs> no, it definitely doesn't. Right, but but also I don't think they use like get around and riff with your friends <laughs> in real life. You know, it's just like it just moves on faster than what we're seeing here. So every time the movie stops so that somebody can be funny, knowing that it's over two hours, it just annoys me. It sets your internal rec- uh, like uh, reset button, rather. It like hits that, and it's like, okay, now I got to fucking 
it 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 gives you enough time to get centered to realize how how fucking long the movie is. It's not it doesn't like help the plot along anything like that. Um, and yeah, you're right. And the, you don't do that with your friends. You don't just sit there and hey, this. No, this. <laughs> this. Well, there's that scene. But, I think it's like right in the middle of the movie when uh, uh, Paul Rudd is like trying to take pictures of his asshole and he she comes in and it's like it goes on for like, I don't know, five minutes. Mm-hmm. Take that out of the movie. Nothing changes. Right. Exactly. It, that is what I mean. The only reason it's there is because I guess he thinks it's funny. And maybe some people will find it funny. But to me, it was just annoying because it's like, just get on with it. Yeah. You know, this has absolutely no bearing on the plot. And uh, it's not like, oh, his his hemorrhoid comes to play, like, any sort of part in what happens later in the movie. He bleeds out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. This... God, I want to watch that cut of the movie. <laughs> this this could have been an episode of The Office. It could have been a 22-minute episode of television. That's what makes it so frustrating. But Do you notice the little girl, the youngest, was playing The Office theme? That's, her... that's why I referenced oh, that. Okay. No. But... Um, it's over. We don't have to come back to this. But we will. I put it's, it off for as long as I could. It's such a big part of... Judd Apatow is such a big part of current modern culture. I think that you can't... Yeah. And it's going to keep coming up because it just... I, I don't know. I think of This is 40 before I think of uh, Funny People or before I think of Trainwreck. Um, when I think of like, oh, something that just went horribly wrong... I Again, really do like. I, I was a bit more tipsy than I am now when we started, but like, uh, hate's a pretty strong word. But there's very few movie experiences that I've had that, that I remember as being just more venomously angry than I was at this. Like, it's just, it's so bad, and it's. But the the upside to it is, it's something I can point to to say. You know, okay, well, it, this was an example of how that was worse. Or, like, the, you know, I can use this to say, okay, at least it wasn't this. It improved on this. This is, this is the bar. Yes. For, for this type of film. Um, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to revisit it, too, is because I remember going into it not expecting. Like, I was expecting to be disappointed or to be angry because that trailer didn't do it any favors. Do you remember the song they used for the trailer? Yes. It's fucking, uh, God damn it. I hate that song still just because of the trailer because I think of fucking Paul Rudd jumping up and down in slow motion. Uh, I'm not going to remember. We are, yes. yeah. Fuck that song. <laughs> I remember screening it and it's like coming from me just being really annoyed by the the turn that funny people took. I was already kind of like Apatow was kind of on my bad side. And then I see that trailer and it just – I'm just ready to hate this movie. And then I watch it and I hate it. And I was like – so all this time I've been wondering, maybe I wasn't fair to it, but we just rewatched it. I was like, nope, it, it's, it's still like it's all these bad. years later, I just still don't like it. And I was really, really willing to give it a shot. More than that, actually, I was actively trying to find good stuff in it because I knew I was like on the defense side <laughs> in, on this episode. Now, if you have to say something that you like about the movie, can you say nice things about the movie? That are true, <laughs> not like just lying. I mean, you laughed. Albert Brooks is funny. Albert Brooks is funny. I think Albert Brooks does a great job. I, I think everybody made me laugh at least once. Uh, I can't. I'm trying to Megan think. Megan Fox of... in her brawn panties three times. What? You know, never bad. No. Uh, and and you know, okay, Melissa McCarthy for all her like, for all that, I don't know. I obviously she's there playing like a Melissa McCarthy role in the sense of like by now. She she was just like, oh, well, this is like 
the lady that just cusses, right? Yeah. But I found her funny. That whole sequence, too, I wish it was in a better movie. The idea that these parents managed to just pretend to be really nice <laughs> so that Melissa McCarthy just basically hangs herself by by losing her mind. Um and also, I just love like the word "I cunt." It's just <laughs> I like it. Fair enough. Um, but it's... oh, and that she made you laugh. I, I just remember she made you laugh because she ends her big tirade when she's like, just she's berating the principal. Oh, and she's, she's like, "You're a bitch. I'm glad your husband died. Right, he probably, probably killed, killed him. himself." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never said Melissa McCarthy's not funny. It's just that whole they rely too much on it. But <laughs> all right. Moving along, This Is 40 is over and done. I'm sure it'll still be referenced. Episode 41 is going to be a bit down the line. I uh, don't know what it is. That's our, our mm-hmm. secret our secret episode for me. Oh, I've got it in the holster. <laughs> I'm going to try to get our, re- our friend Reed on board, and uh, Julio and Reed will not know what it is until I put it in the player. Uh, moving right along to plugs. Julio, what do you got for us? Uh, plugs. Okay, so... Oh, shit. I should have like looked this up, looked this up while you were talking about... Hang on, this will take just a second. So, plugs. Uh, I have two of them. The first one is a hilarious uh, Twitter account, funnier than This Is 40, for sure. Uh, it's called... Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. It's called President Supervillain. It's at, at Press Villain, like P-R-E-S Villain. And uh, it's just basically... It takes uh, Trump's tweets and it puts them in the mouth of the Red Skull. The Captain America supervillain. Amazing. Yes. So they actually, you know, they take uh, comic book panels from Captain America comics and they and then they change the captions from whatever the Red Skull is saying to whatever the Trump tweet is. And it's one, funny, two, terrifying. Because <laughs> if you didn't know, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that that's just a Captain America comic. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I know. The first time like a friend sent me the link and I honestly, the first couple of, of panels I saw, I just thought that they happened to be real comic book panels that coincidentally were matching something that Trump had said. And then after a while, I kept scrolling. I was like, oh, no, this is just like Trump's words putting on, on uh, the Red Skull. And it's it's just really fucking funny. <laughs> and, you know, you got to laugh not to cry. Oh, so, absolutely. Especially with that shit. So there's that. President, supervillain. Uh, and then the other thing, uh, Alex, what is your experience with Star Trek? Limited. How about like Star Trek Next Generation? Did you watch it? Did you grow up with it? Did you? Like- I, I did. It always. Uh, it was on before Raw when I was growing up on USA. So I would always watch like the last ten minutes of it. With uh, you're talking about with Patrick Stewart, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Professor X. So exactly, Charles Xavier. So I'm not overly familiar with it, but I, I've watched a decent amount of it. And that's that's kind of how I feel. I probably watch more than you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. I don't know if like all the seasons made it to uh, to Peru. Where is the Enterprise? Uh, but but I remember watching like a lot. Like I was in high school and I had a couple friends that watch it and we'd talk about the show afterwards. And uh, I remember liking it and I remember being aware that some episodes were weaker than others. And mm-hmm. then, you know, kind of like, as I was learning about seasons, I was like, oh, like obviously the earlier seasons, they were still trying to figure it out. And then later it gets really good. And definitely I've watched all the movies. Uh, but anyway, I grew up, I guess, you know, everybody has like their Star Trek show that they grew up with if they grew up with a Star Trek show and mine would be next gen. Uh, and now it's all available uh, on Netflix. Oh, but my shit. plug, my plug is not for next gen. My plug is for this podcast that is about Star Trek The Next Generation because I started watching it on Netflix. I needed something for like 
Netflix kept suggesting it to me. And I was like, I've already seen, like, I feel like I've seen most of the episodes. So uh, I was like, I can play in the background while I'm doing other stuff. And I started mm-hmm. doing that. And then after, like, I don't know, 10, 12 episodes, I kind of felt the need to talk to someone about it. But it's not a current show, so nobody's talking about it. Yeah, I really want to, like, go digging deep into the web to find, like, I don't know, message board <laughs> or anything. So what I did is, like, okay, well, this probably, there has to be a podcast about Next Generation. Yeah, and I mean, I guess there's several several podcasts, but I I found one that's funny that doesn't take itself seriously and definitely doesn't take the show seriously. Uh, it's called The Greatest Generation, and they basically their their short episodes are like thirty to forty minutes each, and they just talk. They're going episode by episode. So right now they're like in season five, I think. But I just went back and started from the very beginning, from season one, and so I've been. Watching the show on Netflix and then listening to the their podcast, nice, and it's just like the perfect compliment, and uh, just a lot of fun. It's two guys that are like really funny. They they don't commit any of the podcasting sins that I I sometimes spot and hate in other podcasts. You know, they don't they get right to the point. They don't waste time on their personal lives. They just they really get to it, and they and of course they're funny. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, if you are a Next Generation fan, this is definitely something that you want to check out. Uh, if you are not a Next Generation fan, but you want to check Next Generation, it's on Netflix. And then you can you know, add this Segway. show. Exactly. Just watch an episode and listen to these guys make fun of it. Uh, I'm almost done with the first season. And, of course, the first season is their weakest. There's a lot to make fun of. Uh, I'm really curious to see what happens to this podcast once the show starts getting good. <laughs> because, I mean, obviously, I think we've proven that you can make fun of anything, too. Like, you know, oh, good yeah. stuff. But it'll be interesting to see them have, have to, like, switch targets. Because, you know, right now they can just make fun of the production value and it's really easy. But yeah. what happens when it's, it's you know, when you can't make fun of how things look anymore. So, uh, yeah, it's it's really good. I'm, I'm pretty happy that I discovered it. And I even, like... Uh, I just I actually rated on iTunes. I tweeted at all the guys. I, yeah, I went all out. It's like you guys are awesome, and they replied. So there you go. Um, Do you have any plugs, Alex? I don't. Not for this week. Um, the only th- I've just been rewatching a bunch of shit recently. So uh, actually, yeah, plug in uh, Target, uh, their online shopping system. I ordered the fucking Royal Rumble twenty seven uh, twenty seventeen Blu Ray like two days ago, and it got to my house today. And so, did they deliver it uh, for free by a drone? I don't know what they delivered it by, but it was free. So, props to them. I just now have to find a day where I can sit down and commit to watching the Royal. <laughs> props to Disney too. They're so fucking tight and on top of everything in my Disney? reservations. The Disney resorts. Oh, oh okay. Like I, I made like... all my reservations and shit, and they sent me all these emails, and they were calling me and shit. They're like, "Okay, Mister Mattis," and I changed my name on the my reservations to uh, Big Don. So they have to call me Big Don now, God. and they reach out to me. You're that guy. You oh, yeah. to be funny. I Ooh, am dude. funny. <laughs> so anyway, no, that that clears it up for me. I, I I'm just were, glad I, we're done here. I thought you were implying that Disney put out the WrestleMania Blu-ray because you were saying props to Disney for like right after talking oh, about the no. Blu-ray. I was like, wow, I did not know that they were expanding that way. <laughs> They, yeah, they spent $4 billion on uh, Star Wars, and then they're like, all right, Vince, hand it over. They won a, b- a finger on every pie. It's true, but their pies are so delicious, so I can't <laughs> say no. 
Uh, no, I, I don't have anything to plug this week. Uh, I, I plug this podcast because it's over and uh, <laughs> we don't have to talk about this movie in, in to a certain length again. Uh, but it was fun. It, it it was cathartic letting that all out. I'm glad that yeah, it's now. Yeah, I, I was. On I told you I was looking forward to real talk. I really wanted to like get into like the why do we hate it? Why do we not like it? What's wrong with it? And you know, I think I feel a little better. Oh yeah. After it, I just you know. I'll sleep a bit easier. Yeah, it's it's no longer now. Now we can just look into the future. I was gonna bring it up anyway, even before it was brought up earlier when we were not recording. But I really. Uh, Speaking of the future, like movies that we want to like tackle or that I would like to tackle, mm-hmm. besides our like female filmmakers, multi-parter at some point. Also, Kathy Strait, wife of the very popular Eddie Strait, <laughs> she's been asking for us to do Clueless, which is like right under like it's in like in the mid '80s, so it doesn't like necessarily qualify. But you know, for Kathy, we can do it. Yeah. Especially because I rewatched it a while ago, and it's an excellent movie about incest. So I think it's worth making an episode about it. <laughs> It also has Paul Rudd in it. Uh, Brittany Murphy, R.I.P. Yep, yeah. Uh, and then there's... Uh, uh, Janelle Frazier. It, yeah. It, it's It's been a while since we did a Western. And I've had uh, The Wild Bunch, the Blu-ray for The Wild Bunch, uh, on my shelf since forever. It was the movie that we were supposed to do when we did The Magnificent Seven. Okay. So it's been almost two years. <laughs> Time to, to bring the, the train back around. Yes. Uh, Brandon Curtis has offered to be... Uh, to be here. Oh, I bet he has. So, so that's also that we can put that on the docket. So if you're like watching stuff ahead of time, put Clueless and the Wall Bunch on your uh, on your queue. Normal stuff. Uh, if you have questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, we are the Contrarians at gmail dot com. Uh, thank you for to the festive years. Excuse me for their album. Don't let me use you. Um, songs opening track. Last stand. Uh, closing track. Summer of nineteen ninety nine. And uh, you have anything else to add this week, Julio? No, that's it. I was like looking to make sure I got the the song names right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I was like, he, he pulled his phone out. He's got a gun. But that will do it. Mercifully, that'll do it for this episode of The Contrarians, episode forty, where we're right, you're wrong, what as the, always. Uh, what is the thing that she says uh, that ends up with uh, with Jody saying meow? A kitten for help or some shit. So Oxy kitten. Oxy kitten, and then she says meow. That's comedy gold, man. We always appreciate y'all's listens. Thank you for sticking with us for 40 episodes. Uh, We're done with this as 40. Uh, But again, thank you for listening to Contrarians. Y'all take care. That's summer of 1999. Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, I'm doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although it'll also be less funny. 
For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful. Hand me the keys, you fucking cocksucker. Number two, step forward. Give me the fucking keys, you fucking cocksucker, motherfucker! Knock it off, get back. Number three, step forward. (laughs) Hand me the keys, you cocksucker. In English, please. Excuse me. In English. I mean the fucking keys. You cocksucker. What the fuck?